You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. We're finishing our series on Revelation tonight, talking about heaven. Uh, and after all the judgment, after all the like confusion and turmoil of the last days, right, where this period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, um, it's the end of the story, right? Jesus has come back. Believers are with him forever. And in the back of a lot of our minds, there's a question. And I think this question is illustrated well by... Uh, a Far Side cartoon. I don't know if you've ever read The Far Side or any comics. Um, newspapers used to have comics in them, but nobody buys newspapers anymore. Anyhow, The Far Side is a single panel, just weird, sarcastic, quirky cartoon. And uh, one of my favorites depicts a bunch of clouds, and there's a man sitting on it with a harp, and he's dressed in a white robe, and he's, you know, obviously in heaven. And he's got the halo around his head, and there's a thought bubble coming out of his head that says, I should have brought a magazine, right? We wonder, we fear, will I be bored in heaven? Like, an eternity of what is kind of the question that many of us struggle with. And and I think that our passage tonight helps us to see that um, heaven will be many things, but boring is not one of them. Uh, We're going to look at Revelation 21 and 22 tonight. Uh, i got a couple different passages printed on your handout, so I'll read those for us, and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha And the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And skipping down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray, and then we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. Uh, We thank you for the truth that it reveals tonight about what's coming for those of us who uh, have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, For any who uh, might be in this room who don't believe, Father, we pray that this picture of eternity, eternity with you, uh, would so move us, uh, move them, uh, that you would change us. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, So I, I think what this passage helps us to do is think about heaven rightly, but to do that, we have to do a little like background work, um, because again, the context of Revelation is the Old Testament. So we kind of need to know like what, what does the Bible say about heaven, not just here at the end of the story, but throughout the story as a whole. And as you kind of survey what the Bible says about heaven, you realize that like it being a place is pretty low down on the list of defining characteristics. Right there, there is, we believe, because Jesus came in bodily form and ascended in bodily form and still exists as a man somewhere in the universe, right? We believe that, that heaven is a place, but the most defining characteristic of heaven is that it's God's place, right? So wherever it happens to be, what heaven is, is God's place. And it's distinct from earth, right, which is our place. But that wasn't always the case. At the very beginning of the story, if you open all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see that that heaven and earth overlap, right? God's place and our place are the same place. God talks to Adam and Eve in the garden. He provides for them there, right? Eden is described as a paradise, right? As this kind of beautiful place of, of peace and prosperity and provision. And it's not described as a paradise because there's a lot of plants there, or because like, you can just walk around and pick fruit and eat whatever you want. No, it's described as paradise because that's where God lives. Right? So way back at the beginning of the story, heaven and earth, God's place and our place, are the same place. But then sin enters the story. Right? Satan whispers in Adam and Eve's ear and they believe the lie that, that God is withholding from them. Right? If God really loved you, he'd, he'd let you eat from this tree as well. God is being selfish. Right? God has lied to you. And Adam and Eve believe it, and they reject God's loving rule and eat of the fruit. And as a result, they're cast out of Eden. Right? Or another way to say that is that heaven and earth are separated. Right? God's place and our place are no longer the same place. And Adam and Eve are barred from getting back in, not because God's place isn't good anymore, but because it's dangerous for them because of sin. But God and his goodness won't leave us separated from him. Right, so to a little nation called Israel, he gives this thing called the tabernacle. Uh, if you've read the book of Exodus or seen the prince of Egypt, you know that um, the, the nation of Israel is in slavery to Egypt, uh, and they're rescued by God. They're brought through the Red Sea out into the wilderness, and they wander there for 40 years. Right? They, they take 40 years to get from Egypt, where they were slaves, to the nation of Israel, right, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, where they established a nation, this land that, pro- that God had promised to them back in Genesis 12. Well, along the way, God gives them some instructions about a tent that they're supposed to build. 
It's a really big tent, right? It's got all these precious metals and um, like impressive fabrics and the best craftsmen are supposed to work on it. And what they build is called the tabernacle. And once they get to Israel, they, they make it a building, the temple. And Solomon builds it and it's impressive and it's like full of gold and precious stones and like cedar beams are brought in from Lebanon and marble from can't remember where, but they're, they're these impressive structures, right? The tabernacle and the temple that basically served one purpose. It was God's house among the nation, right? So whenever Israel was on the move in the wilderness, they would break down the tabernacle, load it on some donkeys, carry it with them, and then as soon as they got to where they were going to stay for a while, they'd set it back up, and this glory cloud, right, that represented God himself would settle down on the tabernacle and fill it. Right? God dwelt among his people again, but not perfectly, right? not fully. There was still a lot of separation. There's a whole ritual system and, and rules about who can go into what parts of the temple and how often and what you have to do to be able to go into those parts. Right? God's space and our space can't overlap, but they can at least be close to one another. Right? So God is in proximity to his people, but then we get Jesus. Right? When you open up the pages of the New Testament, uh, if you go to the Gospel of John, uh, the way that John talks about Jesus is he doesn't start with the, the birth narrative and a genealogy like some of the other Gospels do. He starts almost with like philosophy and metaphysics. He writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we've got this thing called the Word that is, is with God, and somehow also is God, and is light, and is life, and is eternal, and has been there from the beginning. All the way down in verse 14 of John chapter 1, he tells us this about the Word. The Word, which is Jesus, by the way, he makes that clear. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John writes that the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. In, in Greek, the verb there that, that says dwelt among us is actually, you could literally translate it tabernacled among us. Right? God came and he pitched his tent, and now it's not a tent, it's a person. Right? So God, dwelling on earth, is moving around in our space. Heaven has invaded earth. And what you see in the ministry of Jesus is, is what you see anywhere heaven comes to earth. God's reign and rule starts to be enjoyed and experienced. And so what Jesus does in his miracles, right? they, they kind of prove this. They show that he's the one in charge and that his rule is a good thing for us. Jesus' miracles show his authority. Right? His spiritual authority, because he casts out demons. His authority over creation, as he stills storms, right? as he heals people. But they also show his compassion. Healing lepers, providing food for the hungry, restoring sight to the blind, raising the dead. Right? When Jesus shows up, the Genesis curse starts to work backward, unraveling, and things around him get restored. Which brings us to our passage tonight, the next step in the story, in, in what the Bible says about God's space and our space, or heaven and earth. John says in verse 1 of chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
right? And because this is revelation, he's going to tell us all about these visions that he has. But notice in the rest of the passage, though he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he just describes one thing, right? John doesn't say, like, the new heaven had the appearance of a glowing city and there were lots of people wearing white robes and playing harps. And, and the new earth was really, really pretty and shiny and had that new car smell. No, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and he goes on to describe one thing. Because what John describes is a restored creation where heaven and earth, God's space and our space, again, overlap perfectly, fully, and inseparably. This is what the voice from the throne declares in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. <clears throat> I think part of the problem and, and part of maybe what causes us to worry and wonder if we'll be bored in heaven is because so often our pictures of heaven leave out this central fact, right? That God is there, that Jesus is there, and we are there with him. Because, yes, if you only picture sitting on a cloud playing a harp for eternity— I'll be the first to say that would be really boring, right? You, would, you should wish you had brought a magazine. But also, like, if you only picture heaven as reuniting with loved ones or, like, infinite potential to learn new things, right, to exercise your curiosity or, or infinite potential to enjoy your hobbies, right? Like, I could play golf forever, right, on a course that never ends. That would eventually become disinteresting, but heaven is a world of love because it's the home of the God who is love. And there are no barriers between us and God anymore. This is what is meant in chapter 21, verse 22. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Right? There's no temple in the city because there's no need to go to a place to worship God. There's no need to have any kind of mediated presence you just get to be in God's presence. Or chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Right? If you read through the rest of the Bible, nobody sees God's face because it's death for humans. Even like one of the best people in the Old Testament, Moses, isn't allowed to see God's face. And when he goes into the tabernacle, he has to wear this veil to protect him from the danger of the glory and holiness of God. But here... In the new heavens and new earth, there's no temple and there's no veil, right? Perfect, complete access. I think we get foretastes of this in, in the world here, right? Foretastes of the presence of God. Sometimes in worship, you get a sense of, of God's presence that goes beyond any emotional response to a song or the, the content of a sermon, right? You feel like God is speaking to you. Like you're really resting in his presence. Sometimes uh, on, on earth in this world with friends, you get those moments of like perfect satisfaction where you're not performing anymore. You're not evaluating yourself, right? Like, am, am I laughing in the right way? Or how did that joke land? You're just, you're you because you're not thinking about you. And the conversation and laughter and joy just fills you up. And, and it's even deeper when that fellowship is with other believers. And sometimes when we're out in God's creation, right, out in his world, we get these moments of profound wonder and awe. 
right, at a sunset, the ocean, looking over the mountains and seeing the mist fill in the valleys, right? Like, it feels like the beauty of creation just reaches out and slaps you in the face and leaves you speechless. And all of a sudden, you're in a posture of worship before a God who made all of it. And what's coming for God's people is that, right? All of that, wonder and worship and joy and satisfaction and and perfection and peace all rolled into one forever. Because God is there and we enjoy his presence fully. Because he's beautiful and we're captivated by him and no longer obsessed with ourselves, And we'll find that even our capacity for joy is enlarged. And because God is infinite, it will take eternity for us to enjoy him. Right? He will infinitely be able to surprise us with his love and his goodness. Heaven is glorious because it's where God is. Right? It's not because we get to float on clouds and play harps or golf or enjoy our hobbies. Right? Heaven is glorious because it's where God is, and it's where his people will be with him forever. But that's not all. Right? John's like one of those infomercials. Right? It's like, you get all of this, but wait, there's more. Right? John doesn't just describe like, that God is there in heaven. He also describes the things that flow from God's presence that we'll enjoy in heaven. And they can be summed up in one word, rest. Right? This is what the author of Hebrews says about heaven, that it's a rest for the people of God. But what does that rest look like? Look again at our passage at 21, verse 1. In heaven there's a rest from fear. There's this little line in there, right? John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first had passed away, and the sea was no more. And sometimes we read that and we think, oh, I like the beach, right? Like, why can't there be a beach in heaven? Um, Again, Old Testament context of Revelation, uh, the Israelites are a desert people. Their biggest bodies of water that they regularly engage with are lakes, right? Remember, they're kind of like, people-identifying events crossing the Red Sea. They didn't swim. They didn't get on a boat, right? They walked because God separated the water so that they didn't have to get wet. Because for the Israelites, for people who live in the desert, the sea represents chaos. It represents danger. It represents things being out of control and confusion. And, And so what John sees when he looks at heaven and he says the sea was no more is not that, like, we don't ever get to go to the beach again, but that that place of, of a lack of control, of chaos, of fear, of uncertainty is no more. But you could look at chapter 22, verse 5 as well. There's something else that's gone. Chapter 22, verse 5 says, Night will be no more. We'll need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light. Um, starting to get to the age of my kids where they have imaginations that can be like pretty vivid, and they say they're afraid of the dark, right? And I I have this conviction, I have this theory, this thought, that nobody's actually afraid of the dark, right? The dark isn't scary, it's what could be in the dark that is scary, right? Like, my kids aren't afraid that the darkness is going to hurt them, but that the darkness is hiding something that's going to hurt them, right? Because in the dark, they feel disoriented. If they wake up in the middle of the night and their room is dark, like, How do I get from here to, like, how do I go wake up mom and dad? I can't find the way, right? Or they wake up and they feel vulnerable. They feel like it's this weird feeling of exposure because you don't know who's watching, right? Sometimes we feel exposed in the light because everybody can see us, but we also feel exposed and vulnerable in the dark, 
right? Because we don't know who's looking. But in heaven, that's gone, right? The night will be no more. So whether it's the the chaos and confusion of the sea or whether it's the exposure and vulnerability of the dark, in heaven there is rest from fear. In heaven there is rest from our doubts. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Uh, It's weird, but that holy city, New Jerusalem, uh, that's a picture of the people of God, right, of the church, of us. Uh, We get described um, literally as a brick wall, right? Later on uh, in chapter 21, um, an angel says to John, come, I'll show you the bride. And he takes and shows the city and talks about its dimensions, right? It's this wide, it's this deep, it's this tall. Here's how thick the walls are, right? So like the people of God are like a brick wall. But what you see in verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Uh, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Christian singer-songwriters, is a guy named Andrew Peterson, lives in Nashville, um, does this Behold the Lamb of God tour every year. He's got a Christmas album that's really, really good. Um, I recommend it to all of you. Uh, one of his albums uh, has a song on it called The Burning Edge of Dawn. Uh, and it, it talks about, like, kind of this, this vision of what's coming in the new heavens and new earth. And, and there's this line in the song that the first time I heard it just like hit really, really deep. Right? He's talking about this dream that he has where he wakes and he sees the burning edge of dawn as the new heavens and new earth are breaking in. I had a dream that I was waking at the burning edge of dawn and I could finally believe the king had loved me all along. I could finally believe the king had loved me all along. Isn't that a question that like thunders against your rest, right? Does God really love me? Does he love me? Does he like me? Does he cherish me, right? Because we with Adam and Eve believe that lie of the serpent, right? He's withholding, right? He's disappointed in you. He doesn't love you. Wouldn't knowing deep down that the king has loved you all along change the way you live, right? What, what would that look like? For, from other people, right? That would change what you look for from other people. That would change what you try and prove to other people. But here in verse 2, what John describes is a bride adorned for her husband. And what John describes elsewhere in Revelation is Christ as a bridegroom, waiting, expectant, grinning from ear to ear, full of anticipation and joy. One of the reasons that I love doing weddings is that I get a front row seat, not to the bride coming down the aisle. Everybody can see her. I get to stand right next to the groom, right? And sometimes they just like grin from ear to ear. Sometimes they're like a blubbering mess of a man. Sometimes they just like have like beam and this like one tear rolls down. But I get to sit there and watch the anticipation and the joy and like this vision of the future that he gets to have seeing his bride walk towards us. That's what John says Jesus looks at you like, right? That grin from ear to ear and that, that, that full of anticipation and joy experience. And when you see God looking at you like that, when you see Christ, the King, loving you and realizing that he's loved you all along, in heaven there's rest from our doubts. There's no question anymore. Of course he loves me. He's always loved me. In heaven there's rest from our doubts. In heaven there's rest from our sorrow. In verse uh, 4 of chapter 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see the intimacy with God here, right? It's not just that there's nothing to be sad about. It's that God himself is going to wipe every tear from our eyes, right? Not just that there's no more cause for grief, and so no grief. No, he will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Um, I have three girls, seven, four, and two, and they get hurt on occasion, right? Like at least once a day. Um, somebody's finger gets closed in a door. Uh, Sophie is really, like, she doesn't know where her body is, and she, like, is so excited to do stuff that she frequently runs into the wall and door frames and um, just hurts herself all the time. And, and what little kids do when they hurt themselves is immediately run to a parent, right? Uh, whichever one is closest, generally, um, and they run to mom or to dad. This happened the other day, right? Emmeline's thumb got closed in the door by Maggie, who was frustrated that Emmeline was coming in while she was brushing her teeth, and it was this whole thing. And so Maggie closed the door, and Emmeline's finger was in there. It's fine. It's still attached. It didn't, like, bleed or anything. But it startled Emmeline, and it scared her. And so, like, this two-year-old comes lumbering down the stairs. Um, she didn't fall, thank God. Um, and she's just, like, holding her middle finger up to me. Um, daddy, daddy, it, like, ow, my finger. And, all, like, all I had to do, yeah, it was really cute, uh, was pick her up and just, like, sit with her for a minute, right? And, like, look at her finger. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, that looks like it hurt. Can I kiss it? And I, like, kiss her finger and, like, use my sleeve to wipe the tears off her face, right? It, like, God does that for us, right? And it, it's not just these external physical hurts, right? Like those are small in comparison to the pain and sorrow that, that we feel from betrayal or abandonment or insults of other people or abuse or the, the thousand tiny ways that we wound others and ourselves with our sin. But in heaven, all of our hurts, all of our griefs, all of the pain that we've ever felt will all be wiped away by our Father's loving hand and his loving embrace. In heaven, there's rest from our sorrow, and in heaven, there's rest from our brokenness, really from all brokenness. Jesus says in verse 5, he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Back when heaven and earth were separated at the fall, things started to, to fall apart, to go wrong. Relationships were fractured. Adam and Eve hid from each other, right? One of their sons killed their other son, Bodies were subject to disease and decay and death, and creation itself began to fracture and fall apart, right? Earthquakes and hurricanes, thorns and thistles, mosquitoes, and hungry wild animals. But Jesus is coming back, right? And he's coming here to fix this. And when he returns, we will know relationships without conflict or resentment or hurt or distance or rejection because he's making all things new. Right? We'll have bodies that don't ache or fall or break, minds and emotions that just work because he's making all things new. Right? And we'll enjoy this world remade. Right? I mean, can you imagine what the Smoky Mountains will look like when they are perfected? Right? They're glorious now. And Jesus says, like, even as they are now, as beautiful as they are, they're still stained by the fall, and I'm coming to fix that. Right? The best sunset you've ever seen, 
right? Imagine what that could look like glorified, right? Jesus is coming to make all things new. Heaven is a place of rest. Rest from our fear, rest from our doubt, rest from our sorrow, rest from our brokenness. Because it's God's space, and heaven and earth will overlap, and where God is, his reign and rule is felt and enjoyed, and all things will be restored. But here's the question, right? How can you know that this future is yours? Where can you get the confidence that life in the new heavens and new earth is one that you will participate in? Because that's a hurdle for us, right? We know deep down that God is good and righteous and holy, and we know ourselves. We know the things that we've thought about others, the things that we've done to others, the lack of care or attention that we've given to God. We remember what we've looked at, what we've said, and what we've done, and how on earth could we expect that we would get to participate in any way in this kind of renewed creation? Why would God give this gift to me? Well, look at verse 6. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Where is this? Where is the spring of the water of life? Look again at the beginning of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The picture here is of Jesus bringing us into this holy city, his bride, and, and walking us by this river. Right? It, it flows through the city and we walk under trees that are laden with fruit, right? whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, whatever that means. Right? And he walks us up to the throne, right? the throne at the center of all things. And that's where the river comes from. Right? That's where the spring is. And he dips a cup in right at the foot of the throne and he hands it to us and says, drink, it's yours. How can he do this? How can Jesus walk us right up to the Father without us being crushed by his glory and justice and holiness? It's because he himself was crushed. This is what Isaiah, prophesying about Christ, wrote. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our sins. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink from the cup of life. And what do we have to do to be worthy of this cup? To be worthy of this gift? The requirements right there in verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 6. He says, To the thirsty. Are you thirsty? Are you needy? That's all he requires. To be honest, to recognize that you need it, that you can't get it for yourself, and that he offers it to you for free. Uh, I'll close with another Andrew Peterson song that I really like. Uh, It's called All You'll Ever Need. The verses are filled with all kinds of good descriptions and biblical pictures of what the blood of Jesus does for us. If you remember uh, Elijah versus the prophets of Baal, he builds this altar and they build this altar and like they're going to see whose burns up first. One of the, the verses Andrew Peterson writes is, The blood of Jesus, it is like Elijah's fire falling on the altar of your faith. All the wisdom of the world could never conjure up a spark, but no power of hell could ever quench this flame. A different verse says, The blood of Jesus is like the leper's river 
running humble with a power you cannot see. Seven times go under, let the water wash you clean. Only go down to the Jordan and believe. There's a story in the Old Testament about a leper who's seeking healing and a prophet of God comes and he says, just go wash in the river seven times. The leper says, that's too easy, but he ends up doing it anyway and he's healed. Right? And so Andrew Peterson is saying, like, let me tell you what the blood of Jesus is like. It's like this. It heals us. It's got power that you can't see. The blood of Jesus is powerful. No power of hell could ever quench it. He's saying a lot of things about Jesus and has some really good like, theological insights and understanding packed into these verses. In this semester in Revelation, we've hopefully seen Jesus and learned much about him. Right? He, he's this bright and shining one who walks among the lampstands. Right? His spirit is present with the seven churches. He's the lamb who was slain, who's worthy to open the scroll. He's the baby who's born to the woman and escaped from the dragon, but he's got this rod of iron. We didn't look at it, but he's a rider on a white horse who goes and he fights the enemy all by himself. He's the bridegroom. He's the king. He's the savior. He's the restorer and rescuer. I hope you have a clearer picture of who Jesus is from our time in Revelation. But there's one more thing that we're invited to see. In Andrew Peterson's song, every verse, the blood of Jesus is like this. The blood of Jesus is like this. The blood of Jesus is like this. In Revelation, here are all these pictures of Jesus. But the chorus of Andrew Peterson's song is so profound in its simplicity. He just says, and I need it. Right? We've looked at Jesus all semester. Right? We've seen him like winning for us, dying for us, calling us to himself, offering us from the river of the water of life without price. But don't miss this. You need it. You need him. If you've never come to him before, this is the invitation for you. Right? Recognize that you're needy. Recognize that you're thirsty and that there's nothing that you can offer to quench your thirst, but he gives it to you for free. We need him. And he offers himself to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this, this vision that's coming, this world of glory, uh, this world of joy, this world of love and peace and rest, uh, because it's a world that you are in. Father, even now, I pray that you would help us to recognize the way that heaven is breaking into earth through your spirit and through your people. Help us to be uh, workers and participants in restoring things that are broken, relationships, the world itself, uh, one another, our own hearts. Father, I pray that we would long for the rest of heaven, that it would inform the way that we live today. But Father, above all, help us to see that what's beautiful about heaven is that we get to be with Jesus, our groom who looks at us and smiles from ear to ear and says, welcome home, welcome to our future, welcome to eternity with him. Father, I pray that that would change us, uh, that that picture, that vision of him anticipating us would, would change us even now, uh, that you would take away our doubt and help us to believe that the King really has loved us all along, even right now. Father, I pray that you would help us to see our need, confess our thirst, and be quenched, not by the things of this world, not by our own efforts, but by Christ. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in his name. Amen.